Welcome to episode 90, The Grip of Grief, Processing the Continual Losses of the Pandemic, featuring Jill Johnson-Young, Licensed Clinical Social Worker, by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. Today we are joined by Jill Johnson-Young. She's a licensed clinical social worker. And today we're just going to be talking about grief, all kinds of grief. Um, I know many of you have reached out to us. You've asked for us to have this particular topic. We're fortunate to have Jill with us because she's really spent her entire career working in hospice and in grief. Jill, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. I'm so glad to be here. And it's nice that we're getting a chance to talk about this and really bring this to the fore for people. Thank you, Jill. So Jill is a licensed clinical social worker out of Murrieta and Riverside, California. And as I said, she's been working in grief her whole career, really. And she is a grief recovery method specialist. Jill, why don't you tell us a little bit more about your background and how you came to have this specialization? I was a grief um, social, grief social worker and a hospice medical social worker in Florida for a very long time. Um, and I love doing grief and loss. Uh, I did that here in California as well. And then I rolled it into my private practice along with all of the adoptions work that I did for the County of Riverside, which is also grief and loss, because all of that is adapting to new normal that nobody ever asked for, which is what loss is. I somebody Something has changed significantly. I don't like it. I don't have a choice. And yet here we are and we need to adapt to it. So um, I've also been widowed twice. I am remarried a third time. I'm married to a funeral director now. So we do grief and loss at the office. And then we do grief and loss by going to the mortuary in the evening where she helps families prepare for their final goodbyes. She's also on the National Disaster Mortuary Team, which is part of the National Disaster Medical Services Group. Um, And she's actually been out deployed in the virus already this time. Um, Between the two of you, you are doing an enormous service for the community. Between the two of us, this is what we love to do. But thank you. Well, thank you. Um, thank you for being here. Why don't we start by just having you talk about grief and the pandemic? I mean, just start there because I think there can sometimes be this misunderstanding that grief only is related to illness and death. And I, I want to hear it through your lens as someone that knows so much about this topic. Yeah. When, we, when we're talking about the pandemic, if we think about it, we haven't had anything like this since 1918. And um, I'm a cemetery walker by nature. So in every cemetery in the country that's been around since before 1918, there's a baby land area, which includes all the kids who died from the 1918 flu virus, um, the little teeny tiny headstones. We haven't had this as our normal ever in the living memory of anybody in the United States or anywhere else in the world. And because of that, we don't know how to handle all the shifting sands. We also don't understand this virus well yet. And, you know, it seems like every time when you wake up in the morning, there's some kind of new medical something that's come up that it now does, some new age group it's coming after that we weren't aware of. It started earlier. Along with that comes all of the lockdown and all of the losses that have come down, come with the lockdowns. So we're seeing people who've had lots and lots of losses, which really matter to them. But what's happening is there's this, but somebody died. So that's more important than I didn't get graduation. Um, That's more important than I'm not going to have my freshman year in the dorm. That's more important than 
um, okay, my mom died, but she was older and she had dementia. So I was sort of expecting it, although it's tragic that she died. But now I have to find a place for her pet who mattered more than anything in the world, but I can't take this pet. So now that's another loss. There are dozens upon dozens of losses. And what I'm hearing from folks is I don't feel like I have the right to grieve this loss or even name it as a loss, or I'm not even recognizing it as a loss. I'm also talking to a lot of therapists um, across the country and really around the world and um, funeral directors as well, because I'm in that world. I cross over a lot in between these two lands. And there are so many things that folks are not recognizing as part of the losses. For funeral directors, they're losing their ability to actually comfort people because they can't get close to their families. They're losing the ability to allow families to come in to have services that's what they do is they provide that. They're the, the first catching arms when somebody dies, if you think about it. Um, nurses are losing the ability to save their patients. Doctors, we're seeing an increase in suicide. We have lots of losses as people are losing parts of their identity as well in this thing. And I think what we need to really be really cognizant as therapists of is we need to name things as losses that our clients are not seeing as losses. They're just seeing it as adapting or part of this crisis, but they don't name it as a loss. And so they don't see it as a need to be grieving it as well. Um, I'm glad you bring up that piece because I know all of us have had little losses that on the surface could seem really minor if we compare if we say, well, this person lost their parent, you know, why should I be complaining about not having my kid's birthday party? Uh, that was one of the losses that I felt this last weekend. Um, all the plans that I'd had for my son's birthday party and that he'd had and we couldn't do it. And, you know, it, they're, they feel really minor, but they still hurt. And I'm glad you bring up this piece of needing to normalize for our clients, but also just normalize for ourselves that we've been affected too and that we're grieving. You know, we have to think about it at developmental stages. Um, a five-year-old who doesn't get a birthday party, that is one of the big events of their life to date. I'm five. I'm going to go to kindergarten or I graduated from kindergarten, put the little hat on my head, right? Which, by the way, they didn't used to do because I'm old when I was in kindergarten. <laughs> it was just, <laughs> end of the school either. year, bye, kid, take your stuff later. Right? Yeah, me too. I remember being sad that I had to leave kindergarten that day because I love my teacher. And what? I have to leave now? Right? So every single one of those is a loss. I wrote a blog at the request of a friend of mine um, in Denver because her son didn't get graduation. And she said, I don't know how to reach him. He's, you know, I'm mom, I'm the therapist. He's not listening to me. Maybe he'll listen to somebody else with letters behind their name, right? Especially if I don't tell him I know you. And can you just talk about, this is a big loss. This is a big deal. So I did. And I said, you know, I, I keep hearing I, and seeing these idiot memes saying, well, yeah, but other people went off to war and they lost their graduation. That was in World War II. <laughs> there is nobody here really who went off to war in World War II. My dad went off to World War II and he would have been 92 this year. We haven't had any generation since then who's lost graduation in mass around the entire planet. So when we minimize that, we're taking away that they have lost, you know, signing yearbooks, prom, last performances, 
last sports season, being able to be recruited, you know, all of that stuff that, that we talk to our kids about way too much from the time they're way too little, right? <laughs> yeah. All these kids that we keep saying you have to have a resume when you're seven years old. All of a sudden we're saying, okay, that doesn't really matter. You know, buck up. You're going to go off to college. Oh, wait, you're not going off to college now. Now you're going to stay home and go to college because now you can't, or you can't go off and do some trade school because they're closed, right? We, we've, we've taken away so much for a very good reason, but then we minimize it. And the message to those folks is, okay, but your loss isn't as important because someone down the street just lost their grandmother. Yeah, they lost their grandmother and that's really important, but you just lost a whole developmental chunk of your life. And that's equally important because that's your world. And we're each having to adapt to how our world is changing. As therapists, we're, we've lost our offices for the most part. And I'm, I'm talking to you from my living room where I've adapted all my IT that I didn't used to use um, because I did a little bit of online work before. Now I'm 100%. And we've lost you know, some financial stability, many, many practice owners. Um, I know when insurance companies shut down payments for a while, we really scrambled for a little bit. Now we're on stable ground, but it's been a lot for a lot of us. And not many of us are calling it losses, except me, of course, because if I can say loss all day long, I will. <laughs> um, <laughs> as, as you and I talk about this, I certainly have the sense that you and I could talk for hours and hours and keep finding more ways that we've all been affected and, and how it's going to play out really for generations, these losses, and that for now, they seem like a small thing, you know, for someone to not have had a graduation. Um, but that's a really big thing to have a wedding rescheduled to lose a family member and not have a funeral. My God, that's a huge thing. And we're going to talk about that. You know, for our listeners know, Jill and I have already talked about the need for another podcast that we're going to be doing specifically on the topic of how to support people who have lost people directly from the pandemic. Um, so we will be doing that as a separate podcast. Today, we're talking about kind of overarching grief. Um, Jill, why don't you take us through this concept of stages of grief, quote unquote, and how do they fit in and how do they impact grieving clients? I would love to. It's one of my favorite topics. Um, first of all, if you ever meet me at a conference, you'll see me at a table with a sign that says uh, grief is not stages because stages of grief from Elizabeth Kubler-Ross are incredibly powerful for people who are anticipating their own death. And for people who are supporting someone as they're preparing for a death. That's why she wrote the stages that she did. She described them as descriptive. They weren't supposed to be linear. They weren't supposed to be, you have to do one to get to the other. And the reason that it ends in acceptance, um, which is kind of a weird term for anyone except someone who's accepting their own death is coming. Now, two things. With COVID, we don't have time because you're a little bit sick or you're a lot sick and you're at home and then someone goes to the hospital and they're gone in 24 to 48 hours or they're on a respirator for a really long time and there's all this hope they're going to get better and then they're gone. There isn't time to do all of these processes that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross described. And the family doesn't have time because they don't know what's going on because unless they're in Louisiana at the one and only hospice that I'm aware of, that takes COVID patients, or as you said today, UCLA has the ability to let some families in. 
our families aren't able to get in to watch someone die, which is an important part of death and dying is being bedside if you can be. And so the stages, what happens is we get clients who come in, especially the ones who've gonna have, who are going to have losses from deaths from um, the pandemic. They will hear from well-meaning people who will say, oh, you're not at the anger stage. You, you can't be done grieving yet because you haven't gotten angry. It puts an extra layer of stress on people who've had losses to think that I have to have denial. I have to have bargaining. I have to do this and that and the other. And then I have to get to acceptance. When in fact, in my world of grief, which is how I do grief, it's solution focused. And that is, we're going to get you through all of the trauma and the crisis, especially with this particular issue. And then we're going to work through what was left over and we're going to finish the relationship pieces that were not left, that were left undone. And then we're going to say goodbye and reorganize and take that loved one with us into our new world that we didn't ask for, didn't want, but here it is, but figure out how to tuck them in with us so that we can continue to introduce them to people long after their death. Because like the movie Coco, the move, the message is right. People don't really die as long as you say their name. As long as someone's carrying their memory, they're still there. Stages are about coming to resolution and being done. Grief to me is something that you resolve, you recover from, and then you take someone with you. So I, I hope that if nothing else, folks here, please disabuse people of the thought of stages. Ask what they've heard about stages because they will tell you. I'm glad that you bring that up, this idea that we don't necessarily have to check off these certain boxes in order to quote unquote, do it right. And you're giving this example specifically about death and not knowing if and when it may come for these people who have COVID. But additionally, I'm thinking of all these losses for people that we're not sure we're going to have that have nothing to do with death. And this is my moment of privilege right here. But I have these concert tickets that I have been looking forward to for like legitimately a year and a half. <laughs> like I, I, I am looking at the calendar, going, there is a very slim chance that that's going to happen. And even if it did, would I feel safe? You know, it's like that. There are all these layers of complexity right now, and in fact, because it hasn't been canceled yet, and I haven't decided yet that even if it weren't canceled, I wouldn't go. There's this weird kind of grief and that we're probably all experiencing that kind of stuff. You know, are we going to get to go? So I'm supposed to have a family reunion in June. And you know, one of my family members is like, really hoping I'll get to see you. And I'm like, that's probably not going to happen. Um, <laughs> but but I am actually grieving that we have some mm -hmm. older family members, it may realistically be one of the last chances that we're going to get to see them, if not the last, and that may be gone, but it hasn't been canceled yet. So there's this delayed grief. It's not like I can anticipate it because I'm not sure it's going to happen. Um, I'm, I'm glad we're talking about kind of these different layers and how there's this, the really big, obvious grief uh, uh, contributors, if you will, grief creators. But then there are these kind of small nebulous ones. And I think those are the ones that are, are almost harder for us to nail down and harder for us to label and acknowledge. We don't want to acknowledge them because it seems, oh God, how can I be concerned about a concert when you know, somebody lost somebody. And there is, in that sense, we do have those denial pieces. I, I was supposed to be on a flight to Australia in June um, to do three speaking engagements. I was completely looking forward to it. I have friends there. Um, and now 
I have, I literally just canceled the tickets this weekend. I knew, I knew, I knew that we were not going to be going. I knew it was going to be impossible. Um, but it just was something that I was not going to cancel those tickets until I absolutely had to, mm -hmm. to get the insurance to pay for them. Because I didn't want to let go of that hope and that dream and that I can't wait to go thing. And yes, there are people dying and Australia is being hit hard right now. But damn it, I wanted to go to Australia. And I wanted to interact with all those people at this amazing dementia conference. And now that's going to be online, which is a completely different experience. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a conference in Wisconsin I was looking forward to because that's where all my peeps are. You know, all of us grief peeps, we love getting together because very few people want to hang out with us. You and I were supposed to be at the same conference this last weekend at camped. Right. So mm -hmm. we were both supposed to be there. So all of these things, and I'm actually glad we're talking about this because I think even as therapists, we're like, I shouldn't feel bad about that. You know, I shouldn't feel bad yes, about should. the conference. And and how many of our listeners still have the evolution of psychotherapy conference in December on their calendar in Anaheim? And we're just sitting there going, hmm, <laughs> about that. You know, I get email. No. I, I, get, I get email updates. They're like, we've arranged the the keynotes. I'm like, yes, you have. Yes, you have. Um, but I, I'm. What I appreciate too, Jill, in the way you're talking about this is that you're able to talk about grief, something that's so heavy, but you bring kind of humor and connection to it. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in the way that you're talking about this, because I think it opens it up for us to be able to talk about it in that way too, to hear you talk about it that way. I think if you can't laugh while you're talking about grief, you're not going to make it through. Um, a dear friend of mine in the grief world, Deborah Joy Hart, is actually a grief clown. Now she's an ICU, a retired ICU nurse. She was a hospice nurse. She's a spiritualist, but she does clown work and does grief humor. And we get together and we laugh about some of this, even though this is a lot of tragedy, because we know that if we model laughter and humor in the middle of loss, it gives people permission to do the same thing. When I have someone come in and I'm identifying losses they're having, but I'm able to smile and laugh a little bit, what they'll typically do is look at me a little weird and pull back a little bit and then go, oh, it feels so good to laugh. Because when I laugh out loud, people think that I don't care anymore. Or it doesn't matter to me that such okay. something tragic happened. They need the ability to laugh and to smile and to say, this is so hard, I hate it. And somebody just, you know, told me that I'm not caring enough or I'm not doing it right. And I hate that my modeling gives them the ability to do those things. I think that's really powerful. And I'm thinking of even my own experience with my major losses in life. And I am you know, hearing in my mind the idea of the dialectic, that we can have multiple feelings present at once. And sometimes when we talk about grief, it feels like all we can talk about is the really sad stuff. And we can't also have moments of joy and, and moments of humor mixed in there. And so I, I'm, I'm glad to have you modeling this for our listeners because all of us are grieving too. I, I know that just talking to you, my heart feels somehow like wrapped in a slightly cozier blanket. I don't know how to explain it, but because it's like, <laughs> okay, you can do this. You can do this. This can be done. Actually, speaking of blankets, one of the things I always have in my office are furry blankets and a furry rug. And I encourage my clients by doing the same thing. I take my shoes off. I curl them under my feet. I grab a pillow or a blanket in front of me. I have dogs in the office um, here at home, the dogs are home with me. 
And I model that for clients. So if I'm online with a client, they will see a blanket, a dog, something warm that I'm drinking. And I suggest the same thing to them. And it just, it just feels safer and cozier and more relaxing. I'm like, okay, now mm-hmm. I can let it all out because I've got the, I've got my, my blankie. It's like Linus. Yeah, um, <laughs> absolutely. I, I have my fuzzy blanket right next to me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so clinicians, here we are suffering our own grief. Here we are, many of us struggling with compassion fatigue, quote unquote, because we are holding space for whether a few or dozens of people weekly that are experiencing all of their own big and small losses. How do clinicians open up this conversation and hold space for clients um, to help them I mean, process, I don't even know if process is the right word. You know the right words. Tell me the right words. When it comes to grief, what are we trying to do? Number one, the first thing in grief work is just hold space. You cannot rush in and rescue someone. And that can be hard, especially in teletherapy, unless you're used to doing this, because there was a lot of therapeutic silence. And that silence and that I'm here for you, and I literally, I'll, I'll put my hands out like I'm holding something. I'm here to hold the space for you. You're, we're going to talk this through. Tell me your story. Tell me what's going on and just let them talk and talk until they can't talk anymore. Forget the paperwork. Okay. I know BBS. We're going to sign all the authorizations. We're going to get that done first, but you don't need to know their entire family history right in that moment. As they tell their story, if you're listening, you can build a genogram. You can tell I'm a social worker because I said that word. But (laughs) you can build the whole family history just by listening to their story. Because if they're telling you about their five-year-old didn't get their birthday party, then you are going to gather that they've got a family and that that's important to them. And what were the plans? You can get there by listening to how they say what's going on inside their head and their heart. And the other thing I always encourage is my clients hear me say, tell me the stuff you've heard that has not been helpful. Tell me the phrases you've been told. Listen carefully and write them down and make sure you've got the name of the person who died or the thing that happened right in front of you so you can reference it. So if they've had someone die and they've had multiple other other losses related to that, or surrounding the the entire COVID mess, you can reference it by name Mm -hmm. so that they feel like you've really heard them and taken notice of all of them. But then let them tell you, because if it's a death, I guarantee they, they will have heard all the stuff about how God needed another angel. And if it's one of the other micro losses, they will have heard, but you know, that's not so important compared to all the other things going on in the world. I'm glad you went there and I want to go there a little deeper. Can we have a conversation about what not to say? Oh, I've got a five page list. <laughs> why, don't you, why don't you tell us at least like the, the really big ones so that we go, oh, I never say that. Um, one of the ones I know is anything that starts with at least. Mm. That's Yeah, at least that you can is, marry again. You can have another baby. Because now we know COVID causes second term, second trimester miscarriages. That came up today. Oh. We didn't know that two weeks ago. 
right? So at least you can have another baby. At least you still have another parent alive. Um, at least you have another cat. At least you can reschedule the wedding. And you can go on another trip. Europe will always be there. Europe will never be the same. Your wedding will never be the same because the same people can't come. And now maybe you were going to have a destination wedding and you're afraid of a destination wedding now, right? Or your dad was going to walk you down the aisle and now he can't. Nothing's ever going to be the same in our planet. And I think we could either look at that as an ongoing tragedy or we can look at that as... We need to adapt to that and not hold on to what was, but look at what we can make of it, but still more on what changed because those are all huge changes in our lives. So we know to not say at least, what are your other biggies? Tell us what not to say. Please don't bring God or any other religious figure into it as they planned this, whatever happened. Because if you tell someone who has had someone die, at least, you know, God needed another angel, or at least they're in a better place. The re- response in their head is going to be, and I guarantee this, better place would have been them not getting sick and being right here with me. Thank you. Go screw yourself, right? Um, don't tell children that someone they love is watching over them all the time because they will never go to the bathroom or take a shower again. Because <laughs> that's creepy. Because kids are literal and concrete thinkers, right? Um don't tell them that someone went to sleep and didn't wake up because bedtime will never happen again for this lifetime or the next one. Don't tell them that they went to the hospital and sometimes hospitals can't help people because the next time they break an arm, yeah, you're not going to the hospital. You're going to be lucky if you get the kid to the hospital. Um, don't tell people that if they are recovering faster than you think they should, because in your infinite wisdom, you know how someone should grieve better than they do for this loss that they've had. Don't tell them what they should be doing or how they should be doing. It's their loss. And as therapists, we need to be really mindful of that. There used to be this theory, and I really don't know where it came from, but when I was with hospice 30 some years ago, and yes, I'm dating myself, every single hospice grief curriculum included the statement that don't make any changes for a full year. You can't date, you can't move, you can't change jobs, you don't change anything for a year. Well, that's just plain stupid because finances change and people change. And and if it was a death that occurred because of a long-term illness as opposed to this stuff, but it happened in the middle of this stuff, people who've had an ongoing terminal illness, their intimate partner is typically done with the massive amount of grief, the biggest grief in the first three months. Because they grieved ahead of time. They did Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. They said all the goodbyes. So they're done. They're ready to shift their life into recovery. And everyone else on the periphery who wasn't part of the intimacy of that is still holding on to what ifs. And then they get angry because this person has moved into their new world. And the rest of them are all still back there. So that causes divide. So we we need to just be cautious mostly about not telling people what to think, how to feel, or what their time frame needs to be. If we can let them have it on their terms, we're going to be the best grief therapist they can be. I think one of the really hard things, especially with telemedicine, is feeling like we can be effective holding space looking at a computer screen. And I had the experience recently where a client had a non-pandemic related loss, but a significant and primary loss. And it was my first time. I mean, I've 
I've done telehealth like you have, you know, a, a little here and there with clients that are in college in California somewhere, things like that. But this was my first experience of sitting at my desk, staring at a computer screen, watching my client sob. And that was even thinking about it like, oh, my heart turned sideways. And one of the things that you and I had talked about last week was I think the challenge that therapists have, like how to feel um, effective and how to be human. Yeah. How to feel connected. And during the session, um, the client looked at me and I think finally saw that I had tears in my eyes. And, and initially the client jumped straight to apology of like, oh my goodness, you know, I've made you cry now. And, and that was when one of my tears actually dropped and I was able to say, I'm really grateful to have the opportunity to be here and share this with you. And I have absolutely experienced some of the things that you're feeling. And it reminds me of how hard that is and how much it hurts. And it's, I think a lot of people, a lot of therapists, that's a really scary idea. It's, it's really hard to put ourselves in that space. And, and, I, and I actually want to invite you to speak more about this idea of kind of solution-focused grief. Like how do we balance being there, being real, being with a client in that moment of grief when they're sitting there sobbing and I have tears in my eyes? How do we make that okay? And also then when do we make the decision to kind of mobilize, if you will? How do you make that decision in, in your experience? Where does that come from? first of all, when I start therapy with a client who's come in specifically for grief, typically they track me down anyway, because they found me online and they can see how I present myself. Um, And I'm super transparent. If you go to my website, you will see my story. Um, And I I don't make any bones about it because that's part of where I got to how I am. It doesn't come into the therapy room in terms of what happened with me, but they know that's where I'm coming from Mm -hmm. and that I can join them in some of that. So when I start work with them, I tell them, we're going to work through what you're, what this is like right now. The goal is to get you to recovery. We're going to help you reorganize and recover. We're going to do some of the concrete stuff we need to do, like make sure you're paying your bills while your brain's not functioning. But then we're also going to, I'm going to hold this while we get through the crisis and we're going to reorganize. In the moment that they're in those tears, I will respond on camera with um, physical gestures I use a lot of body language. Um, I, if someone were crying, my first instinct is to like cover my heart. And for them, that's the connection that my heart's feeling along with them, not knowing what they're feeling, but I'm there with them. Um, If they're crying and then they try and stop to pat away the tears, I encourage them to talk through the tears because that's where you get some of the most honest statements and some of the deepest feelings. Keep talking. I know it hurts. I know you're crying. Keep talking. Let's work this through. That tells them you're right there with them. One of the questions I have for you, because I've seen this on on therapist forums, especially right now, because there's so much grief, there's so much crying. And there's like this battle with therapists where it's like, it is always unprofessional to cry in session. Like you as a therapist, if you have tears in your eyes, you are being unprofessional and you have your own work that you need to do. And you know, you haven't processed your own grief. Jill, for once and for all, in your professional opinion, can you please address that? Because we need to hear it. First of all, we're in a pandemic. There's not a single one of us who hasn't been touched. If we haven't had someone we know die or a client who hasn't someone that they know die, none of us have missed the images. 
We've all seen those refrigerator trucks. We've all seen the caskets lined up in Italy. And if we haven't, it's because we're trying not to look and we're not trying to process what's going on in the planet. It is absolutely, to my mind, as a grief therapist, almost irresponsible to try and pretend that we don't have our own emotional responses and that we haven't had losses of our own. Because if we get to our age, somebody has died. Even if it's just the cat, someone in our circle has died. We've experienced loss. And the two things I'm seeing therapists fighting about, and I used to wade into it. Now I, I skip past much of it. I do send messages sometimes to people who are being attacked, but I don't join in the, the conversations because there's this entrenched one versus the other. And I think I know that if we can be more transparent with our clients, our clients connect with us better and feel safer sharing what's going on because they know they can trust you to get where they're coming from and trust you to hold how much it hurts. I'm like so many things we've talked about already. You know, I'm thinking of my own experience and and we'll do a little self-disclosure here in my own therapy. I had shared something for me that was very, very scary and very sad. And this was years ago before I went to quote unquote therapy school. Um, actually, I think I was quote unquote in therapy school. Um, and I looked up and the therapist had tears in her eyes. That moment has stayed with me forever. That was one of the most healing moments. There was nothing that she said, but the fact that she had tears in her eyes, I knew that- What did it tell you? That she could she could hang that she could handle it, that she understood that. And and I wasn't comforting her. Like I never jumped in. And I think I said exactly to her what my client said to me, which is like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I've made you cry. Um, but it, it let me know that she was right there with me. And it was so, so powerful. And obviously there's a big difference between a therapist crying and sitting there sobbing themselves. And like, we're not talking about that. <laughs> no, that's a different thing. No, <laughs> that's a different thing. You will never see me tell a client, oh, I feel so bad. I remember when my wife died. That's not, that's not professional. Right. It's, it's but joining you and making it safe. That is, it's, I think one of the most powerful things, that concept of appropriate empathy and the research reflects that. But so for anybody who's listening, and if you've had tears in your eyes because of the stuff that you've been talking about in the last six weeks or ever, I think we can say, you're okay. It's okay. You're doing it right. You're doing it right. You're giving your client the support they need. You're modeling for them. Just like if you laugh out loud, you're modeling for them and you're giving them a really safe space because- Truly, when someone has had a loss, and again, whether it's a death or graduation or a trip or a concert or whatever, because they're all important, your space, even online space, is the only real space they have to bring all that in where nobody's going to criticize them. So if I'm in session in my office, I will point at my door and say, this is your safe space. Nothing leaves here. You can tell me all the crap you're hearing from all the people that you don't dare say anything about because you can't tell your minister that was not nice or that hurt. And you can't tell your mother-in-law and you can't tell your, you can't tell those people they're important to you, but they don't understand your experience. So bring it here. Tell me about it. Cuss it out. Talk it out. Cry it out. You know, throw the pillow. Please don't hurt the dog. 
get it out here because this is the safe space. And so online, I will point out the room that I'm in. And, you know, this is my safe space. I've got my headphones on. Nobody's here. Put your headphones on. Go to the car. Do what you need to do. This is where you get to talk. Let it out. Because you deserve to have that space to let it go. So, Jill, tell us what's the benefit of clients letting it out when we make that space and we're very intentional in inviting them into that space and letting them know that we're basically we're here. We we got we got our overalls on. We're ready to get dirty. It's fine. Um, what are the kind of research based benefits of people talking it out? Like you said, if someone's you know they reach for a tissue and they're crying and you say, please keep talking. Why are you doing that? Because the research shows that folks who are able to verbalize what's going on in their head, to be able to identify the parts that are not done, the things that they are regretting, the things they're holding on to, the past losses that are rolling in. If we can name those and diagram them and graph them and deal with them and reorganize, the people who reorganize after a loss are the people who survive. The people who don't are the ones who are dead within five years. We know that grief actually causes inflammatory process. That's where you get that broken heart syndrome. That's someone is responding with inflammation to a major loss. And in the super senior set, that can lead to stroke and heart attack. There has been some research that's come out really recently in the last year about that. And, you know, for that group, maybe that's where they need to be. But for those who are younger, they need to name it and talk it out so they don't end up in a medical crisis in the middle of an emotional crisis. And in fact, one of, that's one of the things I tell my new grief clients to do. You need to get to the doctor. You need to make sure you get some basic labs done. You need to tell your doctor what's going on so we make sure you're healthy while we're doing this work. That's really good advice. I had no idea. Um, and I'm sure many of our listeners are sitting here nodding going, oh my gosh, I've never even thought of that. Um, so one of the things you've mentioned a couple of times, you've used the word reorganized. So if we're taking the Kubler-Ross guidance of DABDA, so denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance, if we're taking that and we're basically saying, okay, there's a time and a place for this, but it's nonlinear and it doesn't always happen this way and you're not always going to go through those stages. What do we know about grief and healthy grieving now as you're using these kind of industry words like reorganization? Tell me what those words mean and what we are trying to support in our clients. Okay. So what we're, what we're supporting in our clients, if we happen to get to someone when someone's still sick, we do the DABDA stuff. If it's after the death and they're in the immediate crisis after a death, because even if you're expecting someone to die, there's still a period where it's sort of the surreal, I can't believe it really happened now, right? Um, I remember that both times when my wives died. I remember when my dad died. It's, it's part of a human condition. And that's when you can also tap into that. What were you? What kinds of things did you deal with before they died? Even if it was a critical death, you go through some of that as you're sitting in the hospital with someone and they're intubating or extubating in, in the ER, right? We do that stuff. And then we give them the space to explore what's going on. We give them the support to do all the feeling and all the talking and all the coping with what people are telling them what to do. And then we move into what didn't get finished because that's what holds us in grief, right? 
And even if it's not a death, like we talked earlier about single parents who thought they were done with the divorce and now we're in a crisis and holy cow, I don't have a second parent to help me watch my child so I can work like a human being from home on a Zoom meeting without my kid running around without the pants on, right? We don't have that anymore. We thought we were done with it. We're not anymore. We're back to that. We're still angry about that. We thought we were done. So we look at what things weren't said, what things should have been apologized for. Who really died? Because when people die, we turn them into these crazy angel people who never did anything wrong, never had a temper, never drank too much, you know, never forgot an anniversary, whatever it is, not a single person who died has been perfect. Right? We have to, we need to encourage our clients to remember who it really was. Because if they've had the fortunate benefit of having a funeral, what they heard about at the funeral was a perfect person. That's why I always do the eulogy for my people because I don't talk about them being perfect. I talk about them as they were. And that humanizes them. And that tells people that's who I'm really grieving. Yes, I love them to pieces. Yes, they had some wonderful qualities. Yeah, they had some moments that were not terrific, right? I found out at my first wife's funeral that she was pulling our little one out of school in the months before she died and putting her on the back of the motorcycle. And they were going and playing video games all afternoon. And I was calling the school and yelling at them for getting the attendance records wrong. That was her way of saying goodbye. I just didn't know about it. I heard about it from my child standing in front of the church at the age of 13. So you, all the apologies, what should have been said, what's left over, what's on that stupid bucket list you got left with, whether they left it for you or you made it up for them. Um, what things do you wish you'd said? If you think about the parents who've had kids who've died at school, and we've had way too many of those and none of those since lockdown, the one thing every parent says universally is, did I tell them I, I love them before they left for school? Did I say it that day? Right? So even if they didn't say it, giving them permission to know that they did say it enough, their child knew. Right? We work through all of those things so that we can say goodbye to the person who really died, say the things that should have been said, apologize ourselves for the things we should have apologized for because none of us are perfect either. Right? I had plenty of time to say goodbye to both my wives. They both died of long, terminal, horrible illnesses. But you better bet there was a part of me that was like, I feel so guilty for wishing it was just over, which is a universal feeling for people who've had someone important die. They feel relieved and guilty for feeling relieved. Universally, everyone feels that way. We work through all of that. We write a letter to say goodbye. And then we figure out how we're going to take them with us. What parts of them are always with us? What parts of them are in the rest of our loved ones that were around them? How are we going to always remember them? And that's individual. Some people make a, an altar at home and everybody who dies go on the, goes on the altar. I've got a table in our, our living room. It's got everybody who's ever died on it. And then I've got every pet on the planet on our hearth. <laughs> and we have a large collection now because we take hospice animals. Right? They're all 20 when they get here, like the most recent one. So we, we do those things so that we can take them with us. 
And one of the ways I talk about that with clients is when they're ready, not initially, is um, on 9-11, which was also one of those universally horrible days for the entire planet, really. Those people who were on that plane that went down in Pennsylvania had time to call. And some of them reached people and some of them left voicemails. And there's a video made. I don't recommend anybody watching it. I really don't. But the FAA was able to grab all those recordings and put them together back to back as part of this video. Every single person on every single call said something to the effect of, I love you. I hope you will always remember me. I always knew you loved me. I have no doubt about that. And I want you to go on with a new life, but remember me and take me with you. Every single recording. Every one of those people in the last five minutes of their lives was telling the people they loved most to reorganize, take them and move into a new life. Not to forget them, but take them. And, and that's, that really is to me such a powerful thing. And it brings it into perspective for folks who've had a loss. That this is something that matters, but you don't stop living because of it. Because if we tell clients grief is going to last, last forever and ever and ever, it's like living like Eeyore. And if you haven't noticed that about me, that's not me. <laughs> <laughs> Because I, that's not how I do grief and loss. You finish it and then you move into a new life. And I apparently move into new marriages, but it works out pretty well. <laughs> except when they die again. <laughs> right? You and I have the um, opportunity to see each other. And you've probably seen that while you've been talking, mm-hmm. my eyes have been very misty. And I'm actually really hoping that other listeners are having exactly the same experience. Because I think it's just nice to have it said. I'm glad it touched because that's the stuff that really, you know, if you can say that to a client who's had a major loss and they hear that and see that from you, you are sharing their pain and holding it for them. And that's the most powerful thing thing a grief therapist can do. And here we are all now being grief therapists. And we've always been grief therapists by nature of just being therapists, but never necessarily thrust into it this way, having to suddenly develop and foster this skill that I think is really scary. I think that's one of the things for me is like, I really don't want to screw it up. You know, I will tell you, let me share a story, just also being transparent. Both times my wives died, I went to see a therapist because, you know, I'm a therapist. That's what we do, right? Indeed. Somebody died, you're supposed (laughs) to see a therapist. Holy cow, the two that I managed to grab, both. First one said, I really don't know what to tell you. How am I supposed to help you? And my first thought, which unfortunately my face is not a poker face and my words don't filter when I'm in that space. So she kind of heard what I thought about her response <laughs> bluntly. And then she got all flustered and she used the miracle question on me. Note to every therapist listening, never use the miracle question on somebody who's had a loss. There's only one answer. That concert would still be happening. That trip would still be happening. My kid would still get their birthday party. I'd still get graduation. Somebody wouldn't be dead. Now the second therapist I saw, 
not only said she didn't know how to help me, she added to that by saying, why did you remarry? Didn't you get her checked out physically before you got married? First image I had was somebody like lifting the lip on the horse, right? Um, <laughs> right? Check the horse, the teeth or whatever. Um, you can't tell if someone's going to get sick, by the way. Let me just say there are no genetic tests you can do. And then she um, used the miracle question. And she added, I really don't think people, she had something like, you know, it's kind of your fault because you got married so soon. I mean, I didn't kill anybody. And if the miracle came true, it would be crowded because I'd be a polygamist. <laughs> so <laughs> there you go. I, we need to be able to monitor our words and to do the reflecting that our clients need, not share our anxiety. So if we can tune into our own losses and where they, where that comes from us, then our anxiety about, I don't know what to do or how to hold this should diminish. Right. It could become wisdom. If we can tap into our own experience, mm -hmm. put ourselves in their shoes and remember that sometimes we're not, in fact, I would almost argue we're never here to fix. We're just here to be with, to walk alongside. It's not our job in grief to fix it. And especially in the initial parts, we're there to just hold them up. Literally get the blankie and put it around you so they will they will do it themselves if they see you doing it. Right? They, they need that from us. So here we are as clinicians holding space for a lot of people. I know that there are some days that I've switched gears. You know, many of us are working from home and young children playing in the background and all of that. And and I, I remember one day where I I took off took off my clothes and jumped in the shower and I just kind of like needed to almost wash it off. Like I, I had this I was standing in the shower and had this moment of like basically I just feel covered in sludge, really beautiful and honorable sludge, but like I, I need to get it off. It needs to not go with you into the rest of your day. Right. Mm -hmm. So how do therapists, and this is this is our the big hot question, how do therapists take care of themselves when they are doing such heavy work? What does the research show? What have you learned personally? What do you talk about at these at these grief conferences you go to or will you know will go to again one day? Um, yes. So how do we do that when we are pretty much swimming in grief in a way that I don't think we ever have before? Um, I'm a multi approach on that. I also do the shower thing. I think it's pretty much a normal, natural thing to do. Like get it off of me. In between sessions, I now stretch mine out. So I try to do no more than three in a row, or I do a, a half hour, you know, a half hour in between appointments. Mm -hmm. And I get up and I go outside. Um, I'm fortunate I have a nice backyard and I have a pool. And I will sometimes just take my shoes off and put my feet in the pool, kind of a reset. Um, and then um, I will close my computer. Now, I'm not always perfect about that. My wife will remind me the day is over and I need to stop it. Thank you very much. But I try to at least shut it down for a little while so it, the clients don't go with me into the rest of the day. Other work stuff will, but not the client, not their losses. That's too much for me to take with me. Um, I play with the dogs because that's a good reset for my brain. Um, I also have something called the Book of Success that I keep with me. A friend of mine, Joe Muirhead, um, created it. 
And in there, um, I record the times that I think I've done really good work with somebody and I've seen them blossom because of their grief, because grief should be a growth, not a, not a stop or a stymie. So I can look back on a bad day and say, look, this is where I'm really going to go with my clients. I'm just not there yet with the ones I happen to have had today. Um, when I'm dealing with huge tragedies, because I do get a lot of those, um, you know, the really horrible, tragic, terrible deaths, I really make sure I have an hour between. I journal a lot. I have my own therapist and I go download there sometimes. When I negotiated a spot with her, I said, I, I'm a therapist. I need you to not treat me like a therapist. I need to be a client. But I need you to acknowledge I'm a therapist because I'm going to sometimes come in with just therapist issues. So we have to have this weird back and forth. And I found someone who can do that and is great with confidentiality so I can just unload there as well. Um, there's a whole lot of different ways to take care of you. I make sure that the caffeine is limited, except in the early morning, in which case it's a whole lot and too much. So I can be perky and rabbity in the morning. You know, I, there's a whole lot of just what feels like I need to do right now so that I can let this out of my head. So I don't take this with me because this is not my loss. What do you recommend we do when we know we've crossed that invisible line where we start to see that we're fraying, that we are no longer able to hold space, that we are not sleeping at night? I mean, I, I know I've talked with any number of therapists that are deeply entrenched in it and are in that world of, of quote unquote, compassion fatigue. What do people do? Because I think they need to hear it from you because I, I know what to say, but I want you to say it because I think therapists have a really hard time giving ourselves permission. Time away. I used to work weekends. I no longer do. The only weekend I work do now is one dementia group once a month. And that's because I'm a social worker and that's a give back for me. That's actually an energy helper for me. Um, I schedule time off. My birthday's coming up. That day is off. Even though we're all home that day, the computer's not opening and I'm not answering the phone. Um, planning breaks for the future, which is kind of hard right now because we don't know what future is going to hold. But I know at the very least I can not be on. I can go hike the hill behind my house. Um, I listen to music. I do a lot of centering. When my brain is on overload, um, I tell my A-L-E-X-A, -E I can't say her name out loud right now because she'll start talking because <laughs> <laughs> I forgot to unplug her, <laughs> um, to play like there's a Disney lullaby tape and it doesn't have words and it's just sort of soothing because it taps into the old childhood sensory safety kind of thing. And that helps me let things out at night and just relax journaling. Um, I do recommend that clients who do that therapists who are doing a lot of grief work, find someone to do consultation with or a colleague that they can share mutual consultation with, with client permission so they can get some of the stuff out because you can't do some of the stuff without somebody else to bounce things off of, right? That's impossible. And it's not good for any of us. None of us are superheroes and none of us should act like it. So one of the things that I really do for myself when I've had that kind of day um, where I've taken trauma calls and lost calls and I've absorbed, 
And no matter what I've done, all the walks outside, all the plays with the dog, it's just not enough. Um, I take a hot shower. I wash it all off. And then I tell my good friend, A-L-E-X-A, who will be listening to me right now if I say her name out loud, um, to play Disney lullabies, which probably doesn't sound like something some of you would do. You can also do ocean sounds. You can do... Um, whatever that is. I don't play ocean sounds right now because I miss the ocean so much. It would make me sad um, because I'm an ocean girl. And I just let myself fall into that feeling of, okay, I know this song, you know, it's got baby mine and lion King and all those things. And I can just let that lull me into a safer space back to that safety of childhood. Cause I happen to have had a good childhood. Um, I realize not everybody listening to this did. Whatever it is that helps you reset your brain into a safe place where you can let the tension go out of your shoulders and your head and your hands and your toes. Because when we're doing this all day long, if you pay attention, you will find that your body is telling you that you've had enough. Like you you hold your hands tighter and your fingers hurt. Um, Your shoulders start to hurt no matter what kind of posture you're using. Let that go. Don't sing Elsa. That won't help you. Um, And then put yourself in a safe place. The other thing I have to say is right now we're in the middle of a pandemic. Our clients are in crisis and they're in a variety of crises. They're facing all kinds of trauma and we have our own as well. We still need time off. No, we're not going to go on a flight to Hawaii because Hawaii is not going to let you in right now anyway. Um, But You can take a day off or two days off or five days off and turn it off. You can tell your clients that you need some time away. You're modeling for them. Make sure they have resources. Make sure that you've filled up all of your sites with all the things they can go to and step away for a few days to a week. Even if you've got young kids at home and you have my complete empathy if you do, I'm a grandmother now and I listen to my daughter with my grandsons at home and we're trying to have a conversation and there's a T-Rex roaring and there's another one throwing things at the T-Rex and her husband's playing video games and I want to reach in and grab him and say, go play with the T-Rex because I'm trying to talk to my kid who, by the way, is in the middle of her LMFT and I'm trying to help her do homework over the phone, right? (laughs) And she's working in a locked psych unit and so I'm trying to help her with safety issues I cannot imagine what you what you parents and especially single parents are doing right now other than I see you online and I really do see you. But even with kids, you can turn off the client load. You can turn off your computer. You cannot watch the news. If you have to know what's going on with COVID, watch the 9 a.m. update from New York and turn it off. Or watch Saturday Night Live. They'll fill you in once a week. That's all you really need to know. SNL will fill you in. Step away. Because if you are in stress and you are taking all the micro losses and all the major losses and all of the trauma, and it really is trauma, I'm not minimizing that, from all of our clients with you into the rest of your day and your night and your weekend, you aren't going to be good for yourself, your kids, or your clients. And you're going to make yourself nuts, clinically speaking, of course. Um, But we're going to all end up with PTSD from this stuff. And 
we can't afford that because we've got people who have PTSD already from it. We have to be able to hear clearly what people are saying and then deal with our stuff on the side. And if you don't have a therapist, find one and make sure it's someone who knows how to do grief. Not someone who's got, you know, those psychology data profiles where they've got 92 specialties. You want someone who really knows how to do grief and loss and how to work with therapists. And there are some out there. Find that person. Talk to your therapist friends. Find out who they're going to. And if they won't admit they see a therapist, suggest that they do so. Because we should all have somebody. Keeps us employed and it keeps us sane. I'm glad you talked about that part, that it's okay for us to take time off and that we need to have our own safe space somehow in the midst of all of this. And as you and I have talked, I'm one of those people with two young children at home and I have the benefit of a co-parent and it's still very, very hard. And I think there's something even relieving about just hearing someone else say, this is really, really hard. It's hard to be a therapist right now. And, and it's okay for us not to get into the comparison game and say, but we're not a nurse or doctor on the front lines that we can also just say, this is a hard time to be a therapist. It's a hard time to be a social worker, a psychologist, a drug counselor, whatever you are. It's hard. And I know it, Jill, I know you know it and that we see you. <laughs> it's universally hard right now. And for the parents, you don't have to be perfect. The Ad Council had that series of ads and they are doing them again now. There's Nobody says you have to be a perfect parent. You don't. I am the parent who would take my kids to the grocery store and sing zippity doo on the way out, making up lyrics to go with the kind of day we'd had and embarrass the crap out of them. I sang along with the oldies in the store. I get mad when they didn't do the dishes before I got home. We don't have to be perfect, but we have to be present. And we don't need to have our clients' stress coming out all over our kids. Our stress is enough. I used to tell my kids, I'm going to the beach. I'll be back in five minutes. I'd mm. shut my bedroom door and I had five minutes of just peace and quiet. I turned on the big old HEPA filter because it blocks sound and it clears the air, literally. And I took five minutes to reset my brain so I could go back out and deal with whatever was going on with them. Because we need that. We need that. And I, as I suspected, you and I could keep talking on this topic for a long time. And again, for our listeners, we will be doing a second one in the coming weeks, talking specifically about how to support family members um, that have lost someone or are potentially going to lose somebody from COVID-19. Um, Jill, thank you. I can't thank you enough. This has been healing for me as a person, as a therapist, and I hope that our listeners and their clients will benefit from your expertise. How can people get in touch with you? Um, what resources do you recommend? Please share your wisdom even more. So I have a website, um, www.jilljohnsonyoung.com. On that site, I have purposefully built in resources for literally every kind of loss. Um, I also have a Jill Johnson Young LCSW Facebook page. You will find things on my on my pages. Um, you will find resources. You will find books. You will find videos. You'll find things you can pass on to your clients. I am 100% transparent. I also have yourpaththroughgrief.com, which is an online grief program. But it also has resources on there for people who are grieving. Wonderful. Jill, thank you again. This has been illuminating. Um, we will be hearing again from you soon. And thank you. Thank you so much. Have a good day. You've just finished listening to another exclusive Continuing Ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. 
If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.